Esther chapter 8, starting to read at verse 1. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, And seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Siban. They wrote out out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of the king of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, And the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the providence of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them, because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. 
and all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Ariziah, Aridiah, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, Observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of foods to one another and gifts to the poor. Continuing at chapter 10, verse 1. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Medea and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent amongst the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because He worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Our loving Father, uh, this seems a strange and distant story to us, uh, and we need your help. Uh, We pray that your spirit would help us, help us understand what is here, help us to understand why it's good news, help us uh, restore in us a confidence in who you are, give us fresh reasons to sing of you, uh, to sing of how great you are our Saviour, we pray. Amen. 
Now, uh, brilliant. now, most action films, um, they have a fairly spa- standard plot device, lots of them will have it, which is um, uh, goodies, all is well, uh, goodies, goodies have a mission of some kind, but as, you know, halfway through the film, two-thirds of the way, it all goes desperately wrong, duh, 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 and looks like they're all about to be destroyed or wiped out. But then, um, towards the end, hurrah, all goes well, and um, they triumph despite it all looking very gloomy and desperate at one stage. I mean, that's a fairly common plot device, be it The Matrix, Star Wars, Finding Nemo, you know, anything. You can, um, it's a fairly standard device. And there's no great surprise, because there's something in us which likes that tension. It's a more interesting story that way. Now, uh, who knows how far Andy Murray will go in Wimbledon. You know, poor bloke, the, the weight of... A nation upon him. He doesn't seem to care. Good for him. Um, but um, I don't know how far he'll go. But he's not as enjoyable as Tim Henman for most English people or, or, or Brits, if you're feeling magnanimous towards him. The, um, because, you know, Henman used to give us five setters. You know, he'd be, he'd be sort of two sets down and then come back and win. And, oh, the drama. Oh, the, you know, oh, the exhaustion. Is, you know, it gets as gloomy on centre court as it was on here about t- uh, three minutes ago. And they're pl- oh, the, the drama of that is just far more interesting than just a three-set straight victory. You know, we get engaged. We love it. Oh, the ma- you know, there's something in us which just quite likes those drama. It's like in a football match. You go one nil down, you win two one up. Or a rugby match, you, you go... No, let's not go there. Um... <laughs> Uh, but if, you can't, if things are going bad and you come back and win, that's just more interesting. It's emotionally more involving than uh, just a very straightforward victory. So it's no wonder we get it all the time in films, because it's hardwired into us. Essentially, that's the story of the Bible. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, all is well. God creates a world. Life is good for the goodies, but then disaster, it all goes wrong. And mankind is alienated from God. And facing rejection and anger and wrath. Oh, oh dear. And there are a few little uh, glimmers of hope, but basically it all goes wrong. It keeps going wrong. Until hurrah, the hero comes and uh, saves the day. And at the end of the book, film, book, um, uh, God's people get to be with him forever. See, that sort of story, I guess you could call it a you, is wired into us. We like it that way. Because it's the biblical story. It's the story of the universe. So it's no wonder we like it emotively. And we've had that story in the book of Esther. Well, certainly we get the bounce. Things weren't always going brilliantly. But we've had that sort of story in the book of Esther. How God delivers his people. That's the point of Esther. God saves his people. But it's not, you know, it's not a normal way. It's fairly dramatic. You know, at one point, as we saw where we got to last week, things are looking desperate for God's people. But still, hurrah. He raises them up, and all is well. Uh, if you remember then, uh, in brief, uh, this is our fourth week in Esther, so if you've missed it, well, you know, read the whole thing. It's the way to get the best out of this book, is actually just to read it in one sitting. That's when it makes sense and you, you get it, almost. It's meant to be read that way. But very briefly then, God's people, they're living, um, that's the Israelites in the Old Testament, they're living in Persia. They're a, a powerless minority living in exile in Persia. They've been evicted, thrown out of their homeland for their own disobedience. And in one sense, the story really gets going in chapter 3 when, do you remember the evil Haman? He's the bad one. He's described in the book as the enemy, the enemy of the Jews. Evil Haman launches this plot then to annihilate, complete genocide, to wipe out all the Jews in the Persian Empire. Bad. He's the prime minister at the time, so he's pretty influential. The king, if you remember, is slightly dappy. He's a sort of fickle, uh, easily manipulated king. Um, uh, so Haman gets him saying, oh, we're going to kill all the Jews. Yeah, all right, if you want to, Haman, off you go. And so this edict is passed, a law is passed, which goes out throughout the land. Haman says, oh, when shall I do this? I'll throw some dice or cast some, the dice uh, or the poor, uh, P-U-R. And, oh, 11 months' time, okay? So in 11 months' time, on, the, on this certain date, oof, we're going to wipe out this whole race from the whole empire, crossing three continents, biggest empire at the time. Bad news. Well, uh, we saw last week that uh, Haman got his comeuppance, almost literally, because um, not only did he try and wipe out all Jews, but one man in particular, Mordecai, remember, he's the hero uh, in one sense of the story. You've got uh, Haman, the enemy of the Jews in the red corner, Mordecai, the Jew in the blue corner. Those two are contrasted throughout. Uh, Haman, the baddie, he really wants to kill Mordecai, has these big gallows built about the height of this building. He's going to have him hanged. But just at the last minute, everything changes. And he gets hanged instead. Hurrah. Uh, and so we, we finished it at the end of chapter 7, 
things are going okay, but there's still this law being passed, this edict, that in, you know, is now down to about eight months' time. Every single one of God's people, every single Jew in the Persian Empire is going to be killed. And that's still in place. So at the end of chapter 7, it's, you know, it's about, it's like hour 12 in the series 24. You know, one disaster has been averted, but you know the bigger one is still to come. So that's where we got to. So Haman, the real ringleader, he's been, he's been killed, he's taken care of, he's off the scene. But there's still this law in place. And because of the crazy empire, you can't just say, can we stop that law? You can't revoke a law of the Merds and the Persian, um, Medes and the Persians. Um, yeah, woo, hot day. Um, uh, you can't just say, stop it. So there's a problem. There's a problem. That's, when we, that's where we got to. Uh, cometh the hour, cometh the man, not Jack Bauer, but Mordecai. And uh, uh, these last three chapters are, are primarily his response to save the day. And we'll see, uh, we had it read, but the key verse of the section, in one sense of the book, is chapter 9, verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. Here's the big bit. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The tables were turned. We're at the bottom of the U. It all looked like disaster, but the tables were turned. Let's think, I want to mention three things, three things about Mordecai. I'm sure they'll come up behind me. Uh, three things. And we'll see that in them, Mordecai is a shadow, a small whisper of Jesus Christ. Three things about Mordecai then. He was raised to the place of glory. He secured rest for God's people. His triumph was celebrated with joy. Sorry, not very memorable, but uh, let's work through them. Uh, first then, he was raised to the place of glory. Now let's remind ourselves, or if you've not been here, and let's just turn back. Turn back with me to chapter 4, verse 1. Let's remind ourselves of where Mordecai was. So Mordecai, chapter 4, verse 1, powerless. Where Mordecai learned all that had been done, that all the Jews were going to be killed, that is. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. So there he is, he's wandering around in sackcloth and ashes. I guess symbolic of, he's desperate, he's desperate. You don't wear sackcloth, you don't pour ashes on your head unless you're desperate. Uh, and then what's going on? Chapter 6, uh, verse 4. This was his, uh, the lowest point, really, for Mordecai. Uh, the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman, the baddie. Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. So Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes, and he's going to be hanged. He's going to die. What happens? Well, back in chapter 8... Verses 1 and 2. Chapter 8, 1 and 2. The same day, King Xerxes, this is the same king, gave Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king. For Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he'd reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. The king gives him the ring. You know, this is the ring of power. You know, if you've got the king's ring, that's it. You can do what you want. You can make up any law, any rule. You just, you know, I, I will be paid 10 million, whatever is it, a year. Just sign it with the king's ring. That's it. You get what you want if you've got the king's ring. Mordecai's in charge. He's gone from being in sackcloth and ashes and about to be killed to he's in charge. Uh, Mark read it earlier. Look what he's wearing, chapter 8, uh, verse 15. This is the same language as chapter 1. This is what the court was decorated with. Mordecai left the king's presence, chapter 8, verse 15, wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. From sackcloth to majesty, from death row to prime minister, president of the whole of the empire, it's quite a transformation. The tables have turned. <laughs> the tables have turned so that Mordecai can legislate to save his people he was raised up from nothing to the place of glory. Now, does that remind you of anyone? The Sunday school answer is, yeah, of course it does. It's Jesus. Perhaps clearest, Philippians 2. Uh, you get the great you of the life of Jesus Christ. There he was in eternity, equal with God, but he humbled himself to become a man. He humbled himself 
to death. But, but he was raised up. God exalted him and gave him the name above every name. He's raised up to the highest place. God exalted him. Philippians 2 language. God exalted him to the highest place. The tables are turned. So the point of death, that's Jesus' lowest point. I mean, that's a pretty low place to be. He's dead. But, see, the resurrection, that is the great table-turning of history. That is the most significant turning point the world has ever seen. Because at that point, Jesus conquers death. Jesus rises again and is exalted to the highest place. It looks like death has won. The, um, the disciples, they're all downcast. The religious leaders, the enemies of Jesus, they're all gloating and celebrating. It's all gone terribly wrong. But the tables are turned and the tomb is empty and he rises again. I had a lecturer at a college, theological college, who used to like to say that God's favourite shape is, the, is a tick. <laughs> or a Nike swoosh, if you're so inclined. Because that's what often happens. It often you have to be humble before you're exalted. And that's certainly the way, that, that's certainly the life of Jesus Christ. Yes, he goes down, but oh my goodness, he goes up. He's raised up to the highest place for us. As well as for his own glory. Just so Mordecai. But even more so, Jesus. Uh, second little thing. He secured rest for God's people. He secured rest uh, for God's people. Uh, you get it, um, uh, chapter, it comes towards the end. So chapter 9, uh, verse 17. Um, the, uh, the people, God's people, they rested and made it a fe- uh, fe- day of feasting and joy. Chapter 18, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. And uh, it comes at the end of verse 22. Uh, no, sorry, beginning of verse 22. It was the time when the Jews got relief. It's the same word, actually, just translated differently. The Jews were given rest. Now, you might think, rest, that's quite a nice thing. On a hot day, I quite fancy resting outside and getting a cold drink. Um, of course, rest, biblically, is a big word. It's not just, oh, take the weight off your feet and have a cup of tea. It's a big word. Um, Deuteronomy 12, I guess, is the first time it becomes really significant or, or demonstrably so, where God promises his people, I will take you to a place of rest. It will be a place of inheritance, a place of safety, a place of deliverance from your enemies. So rest, if you're reading this as a Jew, rest has all sorts of positive connotations. Perhaps home might be it. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, 17 years ago or something, um, as a student, I went off to Nicaragua. Uh, and I was going out there to uh, build a school, actually, in the middle of nowhere. It was on an island in this middle of a lake, um, completely remote, uh, a slightly crazy place. I got malaria, which is no fun. And uh, I genuinely thought I was going to die, actually, um, because everyone said there was nothing we can do. We won't get you out in time. Uh, but eventually I did. It took about a day's travel to get to the capital, Managua. Then I was flown home, three weeks in tropical disease hospital, um, watching other people die in rooms next door to me. It was, a, you know, pretty grim. But um, eventually healed, restored, and um, went to my parents' house. Rest. That was rest. In every sense. A sofa. I hadn't sat on a sofa for four months Food, proper food, not just beans and rice, mummy's food, you know, <laughs> mother's food. Yeah. I'd lost four stone, there was a lot of food I could eat. Rest, safety from illness, the world of difference between where I was and where I, you know, being in that home. Now that biblically, is, is that's, that's rest. You know, for, if you read this with biblical eyes, certainly as a Jew, rest, wonderful. God has given us rest. We're home. We're safe. We've inherited rest. And that's what they get. They were given rest. It's a sign of God's goodness, kindness to them. Now, how did Mordecai win them their rest? Well, as I said, the problem is you can't just repeal a law passed in the king's name. So uh, what Mordecai does is he passes another edict. 
And what you get them is that they're deliberately written in uh, almost identical language. So chapter 3, you get Haman kill them. Uh, And chapter uh, 8, you get uh, Mordecai's alternative. And you get these two competing edicts then, because you can't just cancel it. You have to have them competing. Let's have a little uh, look in a bit more detail. Uh, Chapter 8, verse um, 9, it begins. So Mordecai, he gathers... Uh, The secretaries are summoned, orders are written in every language, couriers carry them out throughout the empire on um, fast horses, precisely what had happened back in chapter 3. So we're meant to see, ah, this is undoing what happened before. Uh, In chapter 4, when the Jews heard, there was four things, mourning, fasting, weeping, wailing. But now in Mordecai's edict, there's happiness, joy, gladness, honor. Four very different things. The tables have turned. That's what's happening here. Now, what actually does Mordecai say? What is his um, um, law to sort of counteract the one that uh, Haman's passed? Well, it's, we get it in verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. And we see this in action in chapter 9, verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Now, (laughs) what do we do with that? I mean, what do we make of that? I mean, let's call it what it is. I mean, that's, that's a holy war. What do we do with that? What's that doing in the Bible? Uh, Let me make three quick comments on it. Uh, It's desirable, it's impartial, but it's limited. Or desirable, impartial, and limited. It's desirable, oh my goodness, what do I mean? Holy war, it's simply God's judgment against those who oppose him. Now, in what sense, desirable? Yeah, sure. Well, think of it this way. Uh, four years ago, almost, so 7th of July, uh, 2005, uh, some terrorists in London bombed some buses, bombed some tubes. Now, do you think it's right for the British government to punish them? To try and stop that happening again? Now, look, we can talk about ways and means. We can talk about um, uh, the details as much we could, might disagree about there, all of us. But is it right that a government in a stable democracy should resist an attempt to overthrow it or bring chaos to it. Is that a good thing? Now, we might argue about ways and means, but most of us are going to say, well, yeah. Our democracy, it has flaws, many, but we like it more than what they're offering, the chaos of a terrorist. That's holy It's a national war. What God is suggesting is not wildly dissimilar. So what about if there's a rebellion, if terrorists react against a king, a perfect king, a king whose rules are always for the good of his people, a king who personally sacrifices and lives and rules for the benefit of his people? What if, there's a, what if you're a follower of that king? What if we were citizens of that king? And terrorists try to overthrow his perfect rule. What would you want him to do? You'd want him to stop it. Because living under his rule is is far better than the alternative. The chaos being offered instead. And so God says, yeah, you're right. And so I'll I'll issue a holy war against those. I will oppose those who oppose me. I'm angry with them who oppose me. Surely you'd want him to stop those upsetting his perfect rule. So rightly understood, I think it's a desirable thing that God declares war on those who try and overthrow him. It's desirable. More quickly, it's impartial. 
uh, God judges his people in the same way. So this isn't just the Jews triumph over all, and it's, it's not a racial thing. Why are the Jews in Persia? Because they've been defeated in battle. They've been kicked out of their own homeland because of their own uh, refusal to honor God and obey God. So God is impartial. This applies to all people. It's not a racial or, or um, religious thing in one sense. And it's limited even here. So the actual law that's passed here in Esther it's, uh, it's self-defense or retribution. Do you see verse 11? The Jews were allowed to attack an armed force. So only if they were attacked could they fight back. They couldn't just wander around killing anyone they wanted. It's just self-defense or retribution a little stronger. So the, uh, it's only those who are hostile to God's people who in this story get punished for it. So again, there's a contrast here. You probably forget, but chapter 315, when the initial edict is passed by Haman, it's worth turning back actually, chapter 315, end of the verse, the city of Susa, where this is all taking place, was bewildered. What is going on? Why would they treat these Jews so badly? Chapter 815, when Mordecai's law is, is passed, defending the Jews, 815, the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. This is good for everyone. Even those who aren't Jewish recognize it. This is Proverbs 11 verse 10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. Everyone benefits when God's people are benefiting. That's just a biblical picture. So it is only those who uh, attack the Jews who get killed. In particular, of course, mention for Haman and his ten sons. Why that list of ten names? Because the enemy is defeated. So Mordecai, he secures rest for his people and he does it by killing his enemies. Now, is Jesus like that? Well, yes and no. Mordecai secures rest for his people by killing his enemies. Jesus secures rest for his people by dying for his enemies. There's a world of difference there. Mordecai says, right, we're going to have to fight and kill. Jesus says, I'm going to die. So when you get to the New Testament, uh, um, the disciples will ask um, Jesus some questions on this. Um, so Luke 9, Jesus' disciples asked, oh, look, these Samaritans, they're opposing you. Shall we call fire down upon them? No, says Jesus. Don't do that. Love your enemies. Forgive those who oppose you 70 times 7. Forgive them. Uh, when Jesus is being arrested, Peter takes up his sword and uh, he tries to use his sword to defend Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, what are you doing? Those who draw the sword will die by the sword. That's not what I'm here to do. So not fighting, not killing, Jesus' way is very different. He dies for those who are his enemies. Now, of course, look, the enemies you and I face are not people with swords, <laughs> It's not, you know, that's not our issue. The enemies that we face are death and judgment. Those are the enemies that you and I are facing. It's inevitable. We all face them. And Jesus declares war on them. Do you see Jesus dying for them? Sorry, Jesus dying. It is the ultimate holy war. It is the ultimate warfare. It is the violence of love that we get with Jesus Christ. We deserve God to declare holy war on us. He declares it on himself. That's a violent love. Do you get that? He loves us violently. He declares war on himself rather than see it come upon us. I don't know how many of you have seen the film The Iron Giant... It may be an age and stage thing. Um, so uh, a car, one, of the, uh, one, of the, you know, one of the modern great cartoons the, uh, um, came out probably even 10 years ago now, uh, an adaptation of the Roald Dahl story. And so Harry Connick Jr. and Jennifer Aniston give the voices. And, you know, okay. Obviously, the, the story, yeah, very blank. Okay, okay, let me, uh, let me tell you. Um, uh, the Iron Giant then, he falls from space, from another planet, another race. He falls to Earth. And he is an iron giant, and he eats iron, and he's got these blazing, he's got these eyes that are very red. If you try and attack him, um, he gets red eyes. If he's angry, he gets real red eyes. And uh, he's, you know, he's clearly a, a machine that's been made for war. But uh, he meets uh, Hogarth, Hogarth Hughes, who changes him, this little boy, 
you know, 10 years old or something. And Hogarth shows him comics of things like Superman, who's got superpowers and is very strong, but saves people, who sacrifices to save people. And over time, the Iron Giant is changed. He's voiced by Vin Diesel. So, you, can, you know, not, a, not the most stretching role he's ever had. I am a giant robot thing. Um, uh, but he changes over time. So by the time you get to the end of the film, for very slightly convoluted reasons, the town of Rockwell is about to be destroyed by a nuclear weapon, a nuclear missile. And so the Iron Giant says, I know what I must do. I must destroy the missile. So flies off into space. He uh, crashes into the nuclear missile. Of course, he's completely destroyed. You see him scattering in a massive explosion. He scatters and his pieces fall all over the planet, all over the earth. That's the violence of love. I mean, it's very violent. You know, headbutting a nuclear missile, you, you don't win. It's the violence of love in that film for the sweet little boy. Now, of course, in that, I mean, if you, has anyone seen the film? Okay, one nodding head. Of course, the beauty of the film is at the end he gets resurrected because that is the best story after all. But in that film, and he's in one sense, he is, of course, a type of Christ. It's a violent love. He loves violently the little boy and his family. And so he'll go to war with a missile to save the people. See, Jesus Christ, he secures rest for his people by dying for them. Dying for them when they're his enemies. It's the violence of love. He secured rest for God's people. Last thing, uh, more briefly then, his triumph was celebrated with joy. That's true of Mordecai, it's true of Jesus. So in chapter 9, um, verses 2 to 26, you get the ver- reversal in detail, all the events that took place. And then in 17 to 32, uh, you, get the, um, you read of the celebration. So this festival of Purim is established. Um, it's, we're told this is going to go on forever. This is a festival that should be uh, taking place forever. And it, and it does. You know, two and a half thousand years later, the Jews still celebrate the festival of Purim every year and uh, read out this story and celebrate God's deliverance. Now, where have we come from? At the beginning of the book, there's a feast. King Xerxes, the slightly, slightly silly king, he's having this massive feast. And at the beginning of the book, God's people, they're a minority, they're scared, they have to do what they're told. At the end of the book, there's a feast. But it's the feast of God's people. And did you get it um, uh, when Tim read it? it? It's repeated. It's a feast of joy. Um, so uh, end of verse 17, uh, this is a day of feasting and joy. Verse 18, they made it a day of feasting and joy. Verse 19, Adar as a day of feasting and joy. Verse 22, he wrote to them to observe these days as days of feasting and joy. That's the... <laughs> An encounter with salvation, it changes things. That's the point here. They'd been weeping, they'd been mourning. They'd been a small minority. An encounter with God's deliverance and salvation, that that changes things forever. Two and a half thousand years later, these are days of feasting and joy. See, an encounter with salvation, it never leaves you the same. It never leaves you the same. It does change things. And so for us, if, if, you know, if we're Christians here tonight, that's true of us. When you become a Christian, you see you have an encounter with salvation. And that changes you. And when we remember that, when we look back to the cross, when we do it at the Lord's Supper, when we do it when we sing, when we look back to the cross and we remind ourselves, yeah, I was changed when I became a Christian. I was utterly humbled when I realized how wretched I was. I was completely affirmed when I realized how that God would die for me. I was changed then. It's a completely different basis upon which to live my life. Knowing that he died for me changes everything. I mentioned before, um, uh, you remember the soldier, Matt Croucher? He was the guy who um, uh, last February, uh, whatever, 16 months ago, um, uh, he was awarded the George Cross. Actually, only got it uh, earlier this year. 
and so he was on, um, on a tour of duty uh, with um, uh, the Marines in Iraq, and they were going through a forest, and uh, do you remember this? He, he tripped off. There was a, a grenade wire, and he tripped it. And um, if you've seen him interviewed, or, re- or you, know, you don't get it if you read it, but if you've seen him or heard him interviewed, he's a lovely bluff soldier. So uh, can you just, you know, um, Private Crouchy, can you describe the events of what happened? I was aware that I had tripped the wire and a gr- grenade had fallen to the ground. Knowing that it would explode and kill all of us, I took the logical step of throwing my rucksack and myself upon it and seeing what happened next. You know, it's all very, <laughs> very bluff. You know, that was the obvious thing to do, and so I did. Um, and actually, he was just blown about nine feet in the air and landed, scratched, but nothing else. Pretty amazing. Uh, and he was awarded the George Cross for that. You know, the highest uh, uh, military award you can get if you're not in combat at the time. Uh, and, uh, but it was interesting when he, was, um, when he actually got an award, it was only this year, and uh, the, uh, the newspaper article had a number of his colleagues, not colleagues, I mean his fellow soldiers who'd been with him at the time. And uh, so the question was asked, you know, so what do you think of, what do you think of Croucher now? And most of the answers were, yeah, a lot more than we did then. <laughs> you know, and they were slightly, uh, a slightly jokey, jovial but one guy, it's very interesting, um, not glib, he said, uh, when I look at him now, I know that he was willing to die for me. That changes everything. I cannot look at him in the same way. I cannot live my life the same way. Because every day I live is because of him. See, an encounter with deliverance changes you. He knew it. I don't think he's a Christian. Maybe he is. But he just realized every day he had was because of Matt Croucher. And if you know, if you're a Christian, you know that. An encounter with salvation changes you. Every day you have is because of him. That changes things. Uh, the book ends uh, chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 3. And it's a slightly quirky ending, because um, it's a mixture, really. It's not quite the happy ending you'd expect, because it ends with tax, and that's never really a very happy ending. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1, King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. Brilliant. Oh, well, that's brilliant. What a way to end the book. And everyone got more taxation. Well, that's, you know... Thanks for that. Why did you throw that line in? Oh, and by the way, Mordecai was um, wonderful. Uh, verse 3, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke for the welfare of all the Jews. Literally, he spoke peace to all Jews. Odd ending, but appropriate for the book, I think. Three final thoughts, very briefly, on the book overall. The first is, the first, I guess, the main take-home from Esther is trust in the hidden God. So we call this series, When God Seems Absent. And we've said it every week, the most striking feature of the book is God's not there. God's not mentioned, not once. He's not there. He doesn't appear, not on the pages of the book, but boy is he active, as we've seen week by week. He turns the tables. The way everything is arranged, he turns the tables. As you say to him, God's silence is not his absence. Just because he's hidden doesn't mean he's not active. He is. First thing, trust that the hidden God is active in the details, not just big picture, in the details of day-to-day life. He is active. He is involved. Trust him. Second little thing, trust that he can turn the tables. Again, this is not just a, tor- uh, just, not just a story of deliverance. It's a pretty radical thing. This turning the tables, they go from gloom to triumph. It's, it's a real turnaround. Uh, one of the fun things of playing, why is it fun? I don't know. One of the odd things about playing games with little children is they get to do things that you want to do but are not allowed to do. So you can be playing a game, you know, you can be playing a, play a game with my son, and he'll say, Daddy, can you see what's outside the window? And he'll, here we go. No. He'd look outside the window and he'll swap over the boards. And if you're playing drafts, he'll turn it around. If you're playing a game where you have to collect something, he'll swap your board and his. And you turn back and go, oh, I don't appear to be doing very well. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, you know it's, 
basically it's wildly cheating, the sort of thing you'd quite like to do sometimes. You know, you're on the losing team and you want to flip it around. God can do that. Trust that God can turn the tables. Look, even when things are their worst, don't give up on him. Even when it looks like disaster has struck, even when everything is going wrong, even when you're on death row and about to be killed, trust him. That's the lesson of Mordecai. That's the lesson of Esther. Trust him. Because even in the worst times, he can turn the tables. Don't give up on him. So trust God when he's hidden. Trust that he can dramatically turn the tables. Last thing, trust that the best is yet to come. Look, uh, this chapter 10, it's, it's wonderful in one sense, but limited. You know, taxation across the empire. Why do we get this? Look, God's people had Mordecai. He's a wonderful prime minister. It's brilliant, but he's going to die. And you've still got the stupid king who's taxing people to buy more silk pantaloons or whatever he wanted for his empire. The best is yet to come. What God's people needed then, they needed not just a prime minister who'd die. They needed a king who would live forever. They needed Jesus Christ, who would reign, who would speak peace to his people, shalom, well-being, fullness, rest. And he gives us that. He's the one we need. Let's pray to him. Our loving Father, you give, us, you give us this strange story to impress upon our memory these certain truths. Uh, that you are a God we can trust even when you're hidden. That you can turn the tables in an extraordinary, magnificent fashion for the good of your people. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that great turning point of history in his resurrection. Thank you that he secures rest for us if we trust in him. Thank you that he is raised to the place of glory. And we can celebrate that with great joy because he is a king who cares for us, who speaks peace to us, who gives us rest. He's the one that we need and we thank you for him. Amen. So uh, probably once a month or something like that, uh, just at the end of a block of, uh, of um, a book or a, a teaching, we normally take a chance to um, uh, take questions uh, and uh, to write them because not everyone's willing to, uh, to stick up a paw. Uh, so forgive me not having had a chance to really read these. Uh, let's see how we get on. Um, uh, why is the book of Esther the book of Esther and not of Mordecai? Please give women the honor they deserve. God does. God acknowledges women. Christ acknowledges women. You don't. You delete them. Uh, I'm very sorry that you would think that. I'm really very sorry you would think that. And you've not been here the rest of the series, uh, I don't think. Um, Because the rest of the, I mean, this is the fourth of uh, four on Esther, the book of Esther. And the other three, we've been pretty prominent (laughs) on Esther. So tonight's the only one that Mordecai uh, gets raised up. Um, And it's interesting, yeah. So all I'd say primarily is, listen, if you wanted to listen to the other sermons, they're all about Esther. So we said tonight that Mordecai, in one sense, is a shadow of Jesus Christ in, in how he performs, a faint shadow. But we said a couple of weeks ago, so is Esther. So Esther is the one who does, you know, in chapter 2, she risks her life to go and plead before the king for the lives of her people. Well, Jesus Christ is a type of Esther, but more so. He doesn't risk his life, he gives his life for his people, and he pleads his blood before his father and king in heaven. So Esther is a type of Jesus Christ as well. We said that two weeks ago. So um, I can only think that you've, you've come tonight, but you've not been here before, and not for the other three, uh, in which I think we've been very prominent in talking about Esther. And why talk about Mordecai tonight? Because, I mean, the passage chooses to and chooses to end the book of Esther just by talking about Mordecai. Um, Uh, Why are the women and children also killed? Um, Let me turn it back. Uh, It's just the Jewish women and children who get killed, uh, I think uh, the text suggests. Um, So in uh, chapter 8, verse 11, uh, the Jews are given permission to kill any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them, the Jews, and their children, women and children, the Jewish women and children. So this was an attempted genocide. 
to completely wipe out God's people. Um, it's not, and Mordecai is not suggesting that they do the same. That would be unbiblical. So back in Deuteronomy 20, God says to his people, when you go to war, you may kill the men, but you do not kill the women and children. You do not do that, ever. God says in Deuteronomy 20. Um, yeah, 9 verse 6, they killed the men is specified. Yeah. Um, da, 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 Jesus' attitude towards his enemies, doesn't that make him inconsistent with the Old Testament? Uh, no, just larger. Um, so in the Old Testament, yes, you do get, you, you, God is clearly a God who loves his people, judges his enemies. Um, and, and Jesus is the same. So he'll say, yeah, in this life, love your enemies, of course, but there will come a day of judgment. Um, and the book of Revelation is, is, pictures Jesus as a warrior. And then he goes to war with those who oppose him. So in one sense, the, the New Testament just ratchets up both God's love and God's justice that you see in the Old Testament. Both of them are escalated. And Jesus says, look, either you accept that I've died for you or, or you can face death yourself eternally. That, that, that's your choice. Um, so not inconsistent. Um, no. Uh, when do Jews in London celebrate Purim? Um, uh, it's, um, uh, what, what have my head's gone now? It's too hard, isn't it? Um, uh, it's, just, it's just after Yom Kippur. So, <laughs> that's, um, that's February, isn't it? Is that right? No, just before Yom Kippur, actually. February, I think. Oh, don't know. Sorry. Don't know. Um, last one. Uh, Esther came to a position of influence in part by hiding her identity as God's child. Um, what do we make of that? Um, are there times that it's appropriate to hide? Um, uh, yes, if we looked, at, um, we looked at this in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, Mordecai and Esther, they're both bogget. Um, so they, they mess up. They're not models in chapters 1 and 2. So they hide the fact that they're God's people. Mordecai says twice to Esther, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. Um, and because they don't tell anyone, this whole catastrophe happened. It may never have happened. Haman may never have got to power and done what he did if they'd just been open about being um, Jewish. Um, so no, what's, what's the read across for us? Don't do that. <laughs> don't hide your identity. Don't be so impressed with the culture that you feel you have to hide. Um, this is the second point, second question here. Is the point that God still allowed her to participate in his plan of redemption in spite of how she got there? Yes. Yes. So when we looked at Esther chapter 3, it's extraordinary. Despite the fact that Esther had for five years lied about who she was, had got to a position of influence by morally dubious means, God still uses her. Which we said at the time is grace for, great for us. Because no matter where we find ourselves, no matter how awkward, how morally dubious our path, the professions, the families, the, wherever we find ourselves, there's still more grace. And God can still use us. Because he's kind.